And there she says it's so, so it must be so. Here we are, October the 6th, 2019, lecture discussion number 78 on the book of Joel. It's a beautiful day. Look outside, it's supposed to snow. Uh, I, I think it's 31 degrees tonight, is that right? So hopefully it snows and church attendance will skyrocket, except no, that's not what happens. Because it's snowing, no one can come here in the snow. That's, uh, or the dark, or the light, or the rain, or the sunlight, whatever. But anyway, it's a beautiful day, maybe the last one of the year, so I'm thrilled to see both of you here today. It's really, really good. Don't laugh at that, because then they'll be able to count the laughter, and that, uh, that will destroy our image on the Internet. Did I say October 6th, lecture discussion number 76 on the book of Joel? I hope I did. We've been all over the place the last few Sundays and expect that trend to continue for a while. A while, of course, is a relative term. It's a time reference, a relative time. What could be better than a discussion on relative time, relative time in opposition to absolute time? Those are wonderful subjects. We should do that instead of what I've got planned here. And by we've, when I say we've been all over the place, I mean me. I've been all over the place. I've been wandering. I've been flitting from subject to subject. Hummingbird-esque, some might say. By some, I mean me again. And uh, as I've attempted to address previously, it's likely seems that my flitting is arbitrary, discordant. But I'm proposing that it is not. I am saying to you that I actually have a lesson plan that makes sense to me. And I hope that eventually we'll come together. But therefore, the most obvious of the obvious question is this then. How is the mystery of the mind, the heart, and the brain? So let me put that on the board. You'll see it written many ways in Scripture. There's a lot of debate I'm putting it this way, and you'll see Mark adds the word soul, which is absolutely appropriate to this discussion, but for today, I put it in the mind-brain format because mind-brain is an incredible mystery in neurology, never been solved. I'm going to make the case today that it never will be solved. But the mind, the brain, and the soul, or the mind, the brain, and the heart, or the heart and the mind and the soul, whichever way you want to say it, the way that I like the best, as you might remember, is that which is dust and that which is the breath of the spirit of life. That's how God describes it. The body is that which is dust and that which is the breath of the spirit of life. Uh, that's how he describes the immaterial or the mind-soul, if you will. How does that subject connect to Joel and the seven church prophecy of Revelation 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3. That's the, the question that I am trying to uh, elucidate over time here. Time being what? Yes, that's right, relative. It could be what? And along the way of negotiating the reconciliation of the primary objectives of getting through Joel and Revelation with respect to 1, 2, and 3, We've uh, gone into Ecclesiastes 12 as well, and that uh, has raised more issues, and, and the issues just keep flying out, as they always do, which is what you should expect. 
that is the intrinsic nature of the Bible. That is the Word of God. If it's missing, if you're not finding this overwhelming amount of material when you're reading your Bible, then you're not doing well. As uh, Bill the Fast pointed out in the pregame of the pregame. The author of the Bible reveals himself to be able to do something with his word that no other book does, that nothing else even approaches what is happening in your Bible. And that is, it literally connects a single passage to thousands of other verses. It's omnidirectional. It goes in every possible direction. And obviously we find this also with, hey, look, the heart and the brain. And, we, and likewise with the entirety of the human body, but I stopped at heart and brain because the connectivity is in, ridiculously complicated. But the whole body is this way, including the breath of life, which is that which returns to God who gave that to Ecclesiastes 12.7. The Bible is alive. It's been known to be alive for centuries. People have read it and said, this is a living book. There is no other book that has life in it. So think about that for just a second. It is a living, written word within what, within which is what? Who is in it? Who makes it alive? The mind of God is inside the book, isn't it? That's what the Bible declares. And it is obviously true, and it has this interconnectivity, and I've assigned it to the body, but more specifically, more focused, the heart and the brain. So let me repeat this. The Bible is the living word within which is the mind of God and is defined by its incredible interconnectivity. Similarly, our body has within it what? our mind, and is also ridiculously intertwined. Not to the level of Scripture, but it is an amazing level of complexity. Therefore, what is obvious now? It's obvious that whoever wrote this book designed us as a portrait of the book. We are little tiny portraits not just us, you can add the animals. Living beings portray scripture. The longer one reads God's word and studies the anatomy and construction of just taking the heart and the brain. Go ahead, add the soul. The longer one reads the Bible and studies the heart, brain, and soul, the more apparent it becomes there's this portrait relationship, this grasping. If you grasp this, once you've got it, then the logical progression leads to fundamental discoveries that are equally amazing. Again, let's just, let's just stick with the restriction being the heart and the brain and the mind. Three. Stopping with that. Those three. And, and I will concede, they include the physiology and the spiritual components, obviously. I don't want you to think I don't know that. I do. But 
the one who it is that designed and installed and created the mystery of the mind and the brain and the heart, this triad, this three, he's the same one that wrote this book. And in John 11:25, he promises something. He promises to do something for us. He says, I will resurrect you. I will save you. I will restore that which has gone to dust. And, and, and I'll take that which has come to me, he says, and I'll recombine them. And what he's saying there is that he can reverse. He has the ability to reverse. And some of this is a repeat of last week, as always. It's called the Saxon, Saxon Mathematical System. Does anybody homeschool? Do you do Saxon math? Well, I used to teach Saxon math. And the first thing you learn about Saxon math is the problems that start in the very first exercise go all the way through the, through the book. You'll find it in the last chapter of that book. Which math level are you at? Tell me trigonometry. That's my favorite. Your algebra one? Not my favorite. But nonetheless, you have to have it to get to my favorite. Trigonometry. But you're going to find the same, you see my methodology is identical. I am taking, every time I move forward, I bring something with me. That's exactly how the mathematical structure of Saxon, and I believe Saxon was correct. But there's this reversing going on. He is able to reverse Genesis 3.19, where the body of Adam will go to dust. So he's able to reverse it. He can take the dust Take the soul that has come, Adam's soul that comes to Christ, comes to the throne. He's on the throne and he will then reverse what happened to Genesis 3.19, which is actually Genesis 2.7. As you all know, you've heard me say this many times. Those two go together. This one went first. God did something here. The light of life, John 8.12, hit the dust, made a body. Put a spirit in it. That's what happened at 2-7. At Genesis 3-19, the body goes to dust and the spirit goes back to him who gave it. So 3-19 is the reversing of 2-7. Well, he's going to reverse 3-19 back to 2-7. That's an important fundamental principle. And I hope you have it. And now you know the, what he means, the definition, if you will. There is a measurable value in studying the heart, the brain, and the mind. And it confirms this promise that he gave us in 1125 of John. And it, and it also defines what he meant because he calls himself something there. Do you remember what he calls himself? He says he's two things. I am the resurrection, singular, and the life. Well, he defines that for us. We need to know what his definition is. The resurrection, the criteria, the qualification of the resurrection is exactly what he's doing by reversing 319 of Genesis and going back to Genesis 2-7. If you can take dust and you have the soul and you can make the body and recombine the body with the soul, then you are the resurrection. That's the resurrection. That's the qualification. First, you have to be able to do that, and then you have to be able to do that. That is his definition. Now, some will say to me, and they will send me mail. Hi, all of you who send me mail. It's wonderful mail most of the time. Okay, 
90% of the time. But you will, some of you will say, well, what about Elisha and Elisha? That's a very good question. What about Matthew 10, 5 through 15? The 12 apostles were sent out and they raised the dead. What about Peter in Acts 9, 40 with Dorcas? What is the difference between Christ's permanent resurrection and temporary resurrection? Oh, I answered the question. Who says I never answer questions? Everybody. What is the difference between resurrection to immortality and the resurrection to mortality? What happened to Lazarus? The city's actually named the man who died twice. And the Pharisees said, well, we've got to kill him again. Obviously, if he was killable, he was not raised to immortality. He also was not raised from dust. He wasn't, we weren't demonstrating what happened in 2-7 of Genesis. That is what Christ can do and will do. That is a whole lot different than what the, what the uh, uh, apostles did, or Elijah, or Elisha, or Peter. Well, Peter's apostle, sorry. Where was I? That's why, this is why we study the heart, the brain, and the mind, because it confirms his promise. It defines all of these aspects of resurrection. And knowing the exhaustive components and the physical aspects of the human heart and the human brain, setting aside for now, just for now, the metaphysical, the mind, uh, and the soul, it's so valuable to the, to the church. And it's one of my great, uh, I guess I would say, <coughs> The church has conceded wisdom to Hollywood and academia, and that has wreaked havoc in this country. I hate to continue to rant, but why can't I? It seems like fun to me. Why the church, which used to be the source of wisdom that had the knowledge, would let it go for nonsense. Every service is nonsense. The dumber the, the, the service, the more the congregation size. And it just drives me insane. But we have lost. And here's something that is so important. I was saying to, to Dana earlier. Dana had a discussion on this subject this morning. I had a phone call on this subject this morning. That is not coincidental. As this, and I said to the staff here, S-T-A-P-H. Uh, while they were playing, I said to them, as this country goes into darkness, and it is going into darkness, and it will accelerate. That is what the Bible says. So take comfort in the acceleration of darkness. That's happening now in front of our faces. And it can get worse, and as the saying goes, it must get worse before it gets worse. Uh, the church is absolutely impotent can't fight at all. No wonder he gets rid of us, takes us out. We become invalids. Anyway, when you begin to study this constancy, this astounding constancy of the communication between the heart and the brain, uh, and, and that's only beginning to be revealed by the scientific community, we hardly have any information of it. But once you start to recognize what's going on, uh, immediately, no one who has even a rudimentary uh, awareness as to the construction and functionality of the heart and brain 
None, you can no longer conclude that the origin of the heart and the brain is a result of Darwinian processes. It's impossible. Impossible. If I had anyone who came to me and says, I don't believe that God exists, I'd just sit down with him. I wouldn't have to say, talk about death at all. I could talk about what's going on in this heart. And this is a beautiful drawing. I mean, I'm, I'm so impressed. Yeah, thank you for ooing and aahing in sequence. How come the awe is never in front of the ooh? Why is it always ooh-ah? Somebody's got to go ah-ooh. Why not me? Especially me. Ah-ooh seems perfectly appropriate. What's that? I can't hear you. Alphabetical doesn't matter to those of us without structure. <laughs> we like ooh-ah-ooh. Why isn't there more oohs? Why just, ah, oh, never mind. We can, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna delve into ah-ooh, or ooh-ah, and make a determination. I'll see you next Sunday, both of you. Anyway. The brain and the heart are in constant communication electromagnetically. It fascinates me, but also physically, hormonally. There's many, many aspects to this communication system, but it's constant. It's never ending. And as you know, because you've come here recently, the afferents exceeds the efferents. The afferents is that which originates, is sourced in the heart. And ascends, this is the ascension and descension of John 3, Proverbs 30, Genesis 28. The heart and the brain have this ascension and descension of communication going. It's like they're climbing a ladder. Genesis 28. It's the mystery of Agar, Proverbs 34. It is what Christ said to Nicodemus in John 3. So we have... I think the last ratio that I found in the clinicals is nine to one afferents to efferents, which means there's nine times the signals coming from the heart going to the brain, then descending from the brain to the heart. That is the absolute opposite of what was thought all the way up into the 1970s. So this is just starting to happen. And anyone who knows just that realizes, okay, this can't have a Darwinian origin. Can't. Evolutionary precepts by their nature are very simple, random, stupid. They're without direction. They're without interference. That's the position. That's the theorem, if you will. Evolutionary precepts or tenets rely on mathematically impossible series of events that occur over equally impossible durations of time. So not only are these Events that are supposedly evolutionary, uh, mathematically impossible, but the duration of time that is required for those events is ridiculously impossible. The heart alone is incredible, it's astonishing, it's, it, its complexity can't even be calculated. And someone of incalculable intelligence constructed the heart. There is no other possibility. And why the church does not stand up and celebrate it is a, 
Instead of singing the same three chord songs over and over and over again until somebody cries or falls down, why not, why not teach your congregation what their designer has done inside of them? Give them faith and knowledge and the ability to hold fast. So just the heart. Someone constructed the heart. And then what did he do? Because what was formed first? The heart or the brain in infancy? The infant forms the heart. The heart is formed first and then the brain. So someone designed the heart. Came up with a methodology to get the heart to grow into a, a full size. Attaches it to the brain. And then commingled the two of them with the mind. That's us. And that's just a small part of us. The mind, the breath of the spirit of life. So try to come up with a process that could account for that. The heart, the brain, the mind, and the soul. There is only one that can do that, that can construct a heart as it is with all of this incredible... Oh my gosh, I'm just barely going to touch on it again today. I'm going to take you down to the microscopic level, the myocardial cell level, the polarization and the depolarization. What's going on in the myocardium, the muscle of the heart, which is only, cardiac muscle is only where in the body? In the, in the heart. It's called cardiac muscle. You don't have cardiac muscle in your foot. But what's happening microscopically here? Astounding. And then that is connected to the brain. If you, and of course, are we, are, are we all going to have to become neurologists? Yes, yes we are. Won't that be fun? No, doesn't matter. I have control of both of these things, which are symbiotic. The holy drive race marker and the holy platinum model reversible dry erase board. Intrinsic. Anyway, nothing, no other process could account for the heart, the brain, and the commingling, the attaching of the mind to them. Nothing can do that but a supreme intelligence. And fortunately, he who has done it is the same one who has promised to reverse Genesis 3.19 back to Genesis 2.7. He promises that I can do, I did this, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take dust, like I did at 2-7, I'm going to get the spirit, I'm going to make them together. I'll reverse death back to the life process. This is the life process, this is the death process. Obviously, that's what the resurrection means. He will, the one who promised to resurrect us from dust, will do so, that which he did in the beginning, this creation of what I'm restricting to the heart, the brain, and the mind. All we have to do, our role, if we have one, is to reach out for, for his extended hand of salvation. What I'm trying to say is the heart, the brain, the mind, the soul, Mark 12:30, Luke 10:27, Matthew 22:37, Deuteronomy 6:4 through 6, the Shema. What I'm trying to say. That has meanings that go far beyond any preconception heretofore considered.
By heretofore considered, I mean post-alluvian. By post-alluvian, I mean what? Post-flood. Because I do not know how much intelligence was present pre-flood. I do see what they were able to do in Scripture in Genesis 6, which is something that humanity has never gotten back to outside of Sodom. We're about to, though. We're getting close. But they did things that are unimaginable. Mankind has yet to discover the mysteries, much less provide the answers for the mind, the heart, and the brain. Ask any neurologist. They have never solved the brain-mind problem. It's still called the main, the brain-mind problem because it's still the main, the, 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 the. They have not solved the mind-brain problem because it's still the mind-brain problem. Not the main brine. What is the main brine? Some kind of brine. It's pickles, maybe? I can eat pickles. I'm allowed to eat pickles. I have to eat pickles because I'm on double doses of antibiotics now. Yay. Anticoagulants. Anticoagulants cause the nose to bleed and makes little sores in my nose. And of course those become infected. So now I'm on antibiotics. I'm on I take five doses of antibiotics a day. I have a topical that's three times a day and an oral antibiotic that's twice a day. I have such a wonderful time now. I could tell you what it does to my... Never mind. I won't mention stool sample here. But mankind hasn't, hasn't solved this mind-brain Problem, and now the heart is being added to it since the 1970s, and now they have the mind-brain-heart problem, and it's completely unable to figure it out. Humanity is. I have my own little issue, as you know, atrial fibrillation. One of the cool things is cool means uh, bad. One of the cool things is that nobody understands what the cause is. They can treat the symptoms. They don't know the cause. I am pretending that I might know the cause, but I don't know the cause. I'm hoping that I'm lucking into the cause. I think it's an electrolyte issue. I think it's magnesium and potassium levels. Uh, it's, it's an electromagnetic structure, and I'm assuming that it is electromagnetic interference. Therefore, I'm trying to focus the circuitry paths so that they are pristine. They are not contaminated with other aspects like, say, sodium or alcohol or nicotine trying to get as good a conductive path as I possibly can. But by and large, the first thing they will tell you, the first thing they told me in my post-operative consult, the, the, the physician said to me, we don't know what causes it. We got some ideas on atrial flutter, we got some ideas on premature ventricular complexes, but we have no idea about atrial fibrillation. Uh, so they're, they're baffled. Electrophysiology is, is guessing. They're hoping. And, and knowing, though, is, is elusive to them. Okay. For fun. As I define fun, let's hummingbird away. Uh, I should say to you, I should give attribution here. Let me find it. Where is it here? Um. 
Where I think I I thought I should do. Where did I do it? I have to find it because it's really I think it's important. I know I wrote it. If it's not now, I'm going to insert it. If I left it behind, which I don't believe I did, I didn't. Okay. Never mind. I feel like Rosanna Rosanna Dana now. It's on page 8. I thought it was on page 5. I wanted to do it on page 4 instead of page 4, but now I have to wait to page 5 or 8 because that's, that's the structure and I can't deviate ever. Until now. Okay. Let's just jump around a bit. You will think it's jumping around, but it really isn't. Last week, uh, I, I did something. I noted the ten days of awe. If you were here, we start with Tishri 1, which is Feast of Trumpets, and there's ten days to Yom Kippur. The tenth day is Yom Kippur, so I have trumpets, and I have atonement, and they comprise ten days. Atonement. And they're called the ten awesome days or the ten eight days of awe. And so obviously when you're reading about the ten days of awe, what do you ask? Last week I asked you, why aren't they seven days of awe and ten days of tabernacles? But they're not. They're ten days of awe and seven days of tabernacles. And it seems to be incorrect mathematically. We should have seven days and seven days of tribulation. That would be seven years and seven, two sevens. The sevens should line up. Tabernacles and atonement should be inverted. Atonement should be uh, seven and tabernacles should be ten, we would think. But that's not how it works. So how do we solve that? Do you remember this discussion? Did anybody solve it? Bill the Fast explained how to solve it. What do I have? Let's talk about it again. I have what? I have ten days. What do I have? I'll say it in unison, both of you. Ten days. Thank you. And from the front row. I have ten days. So what do I do when I have ten days? I'll find all the tens. Is that how, how easy is it? So where's the best ten I can find in the Bible? That's right. I can find it in Matthew 25. It's not the best ten. You would have said the Ten Commandments, wouldn't you? That would have been a wonderful place to go, and we should go there later. But today we're going to Matthew 25. What ten is it, Matthew 25? Right again. Huh? I don't know about verse 10, but I will tell you there are ten virgins at Matthew 25. Yeah, I knew you'd like that. <laughs> so your particular interest. See, note the ten days of awe and the ten virgins of the parable of Matthew 25. The relationship between the two is not hidden. It is relatively surface. I have the number ten. I have trumpets in both. The virgins hear a trumpet. How do I know that? First Thessalonians 4.16 I have a bridegroom in both. I have the shout. I have the Shabbat Shuba. I have the return. The virgins that have no oil, what kind of oil don't they have? Olive oil. Christ returns in atonement at the Mount of Olives. So the pieces correspond. 
The one who spoke this parable happens to be the one that will reverse Genesis 2-7. I'm sorry, 3:19 back to 2-7. The one who spoke this parable gave his nation of Israel the pattern that is the feast day of trumpets and the feast day of blood atonement in his parable of, of the ten virgins of Matthew 25. So what else can we throw in here while we're at it? Since we're at this, since I'm landed on Matthew 25 and the Feast Day of Trumpets and Yom Kippur, and you'll, I know that if you start reading it, you'll see all those pieces correspond. Well, we've got 1 Corinthians 15:50. So that one we should read. The one who promises to return and reverse our soul mind to a body formed from dust has the Holy Spirit through Paul say this. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption. That tells you the flesh and blood are what? Corrupted. Now I say, brethren, that co corrupted flesh and blood cannot enter the, inherit the kingdom of God. I reworded it. That's blasphemy. Don't ever do that unless you're just making sure that people understand that what comes next is the context. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold. Stop. Something incredible is going to come next. I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. God defines those who are saved as sleeping. The body is sleeping. Uh, temporarily withdrawn from service. It's a temporary state. That's what it means. I'll read it this way. Again, blasphemy. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Change nothing in Scripture. This is perfect. What I'm doing is hopefully helpful, but probably not. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all be temporarily removed from service. We're, we might not all be in a temporary state. But it really means service. When God is talking about sleep of believers, and only believers are defined as sleeping, uh, he means temporary. But we shall will we be returned to service. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Well, wait a minute. Don't we start with a feast day of trumpet? Yes, we do. So now i got another trumpet. Are all trumpets the same trumpet? Not necessarily, but are they in this case? Yes. We're in the feast day of trumpets. In a moment, twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Well, that makes you ask, is there a first trumpet? Of course there is. Was I ever first trumpet? No. I was cheated by John Fry. He had a cheating mouthpiece. I didn't know about cheating mouthpieces, shallow mouthpieces at the time, because I was an ignorant kid. I was 15 years old. I couldn't be more stupid than any other 15-year-old. I was amazingly stupid at 15. Astonishingly stupid. I set the record for stupidity. I'm a judge of great stupidity because I have that experience. But he had a wonderful mouthpiece. Now I have wonderful mouthpieces. As a professional. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. They will be raised incorruptible from what? Dust. And we shall be changed. 
will be changed. We'll have a reversing. A cha- I'll write changing right here. We shall be changed. He's going to change us from Genesis 3.19 to Genesis 2.7. Here it is. This is his promise. This is the resurrection. But not all of us. For this corruption must be changed. This, this corruption must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption has put on incorruption. And this mortal has put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? That is why I asked you, what is the difference between immortal resurrection and mortal resurrection, right? The one who spoke the parable is coming to resurrect us. He promises that because he is the one who did it in the first place. He's the one that did it at 2-7 of Genesis. So it is of no issue for him to reverse, to change us. Back to 2-7 Genesis state versus 3-19 state. I keep pounding that in as a tribute to, uh, I think it was Susan, right? Was it Susan? Maybe it wasn't. I can't remember because it was a whole week ago. But the pounded in theorem is what I'm doing again to you. I just want you for now to note the, the trumpet, note the mortality and the immortality, the sleeping, the changing, the dead, dead raised to incorruption. So add now 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through to 58 to Matthew 25, the ten, the ten virgins, because that's also a feast of trumpets reference. And then now we've got the ten days and the feast day of atonement. All of those are together. Begin to look at them as a unit. And there's more. As I pointed out, the Ten Commandments are in there, aren't they? Oh, I have on the first Sabbath of the ten-day period. Let's say it's the seventh day. It's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath return. So I have a seven connected to the ten. We'll get to that maybe next week. But just start wrestling with the ten and the seven of uh, tabernacles and atonements and trumpets. And see how they fit with other tens and sevens. Jesus Christ, as only he can and only he does, provides all of this information. And what does he do with it? It's in disparate parts of the Bible, you would think. But all of it fits together. It's all there. It just It's omnidirectional, but it's all there. It connects. It's amazing. And... He explains the meanings of trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles, how they're prophetic and how they're going to be fulfilled. And Paul, Paul, with the Holy Spirit endowing him, demonstrates the resurrection references hidden in these two feast days in 1550 through 58 of 1 Corinthians. And this, one more time, I'm going to say it, is a reprising of Genesis 2, 7, and the reversal of Genesis 3.19. If, I, if that's all I get through to you today, then I'll consider this the best lecture of the last 20 years. Jesus Christ, the one who raises the dust to immortality. That's the resurrection. Returns the spirit of the breath of life that he possesses because it came back and stood before him 
In the judgment seat, Ecclesiastes 12.7, he demonstrates Genesis 2.7 now at 1 Corinthians 50 through 58 on a incomprehensible scale. How many saved people are going to be resurrected from the dust? How many? Not us that are alive. The dead go first. How many? Make a number. You have a phone. How many pre-flood people are in that resurrection? How many animals? We've gone over Nefesh Kaya before. How much returning back to Genesis 2-7 is he going to do? How can he do it? Who else could do it? I may mention a while back, I had to say it again today. You, the, only, the reason that you have to be saved by Christ is because he's the only one that can do it. You go knock on any door you want, any religion you choose, none of them can do it. This is the only one who can do it. The only one who will do it. And he says so. And you can trust him because you can find what he says in his word that's alive and you can compare it to you or me who we think we're alive, but he identifies us as corrupted. And he has to change us, reverse us to incorrupted. Hopefully you see how that all fits together. So he's going to demonstrate Genesis 2-7 on, on billions, antediluvian, postdiluvian. For all who have taken his offer of immortality, as he defines immortality. Now, he defines life and immortality. And you may think that's existence. It's not existence. Immortality is life. Immortality and life are synonymous. If you have immortality, that means he's given you life. Life, by how he defines it, is reconciliation and in his presence versus those who are in a different destination by their will. I see your hands go up. You're asking two questions. How impressive. Never raise your hands here. Or your hand here either. That's the rule. Okay, obviously I'm running out of time. I'm on page six. Am I really running? I am, my goodness. Time is relative. We have to go fast now. Just know that God defines things. How he defines them is helpful. Unfortunately, the contemporary church of this age is disinterested. Alongside of Matthew 25, 1 through 13, the ten virgins parables, and Leviticus 23, 23 through 25, what's that? See, we have the feast day of trumpets and the, and the Sabbath return, Leviticus 23, 26 through 32. We have the feast day of atonement, Leviticus 23, 26 through 32. That must be wrong. I repeated that. It's Leviticus 23, but it's... it's 33 on. And 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Now, for more fun, more er fun. There's more fun and then there's more er fun. Let's just throw in Lot and Lot's wife, Luke 17, 
And Noah, Luke 17, 26 through 32. The days of Noah, Genesis 6. The days of Lot, Genesis 13, 13, Genesis 19. And the days of Lot's wife, if you will, is Genesis 19, 16. Something about Lot's wife is amazing. How does she tie into trumpets? Because she's coming in trumpets, we think, we hope, we believe, to do what? Lot's wife was taken out of Sodom, out of the destruction of Sodom, the judgment of Sodom. She's taken out of Sodom, out of the tribulation upon Sodom. She's taken by the hand. She's grabbed by angels. They take her by the hand and and abduct her out of Sodom. And Jesus Christ says to Israel, remember Lot's wife. And what do we think he means? He's saying, remember the wife, remember the woman, remember the woman who was taken out by the hand before the judgment, before the tribulation of Sodom. Because Israel is going to see a woman taken out by the bridegroom, isn't he? So she is a picture of something. That's the sign of Lot's wife that Israel is supposed to know. The abduction of the virgin bride. It's another shameful error of the church. The church disregards the abduction of Lot's wife. They misrepresent the symbol of being covered in salt as the, as the sign. It's not the sign. It's being taken by the hand that is the sign. Leviticus 2.13 is amazing. Leviticus 2.13 says, You will not, you shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Salt cannot be removed. Salt must be in all the offerings. Salt is a symbol, therefore, of what? Permanence. Permanence with whom? Permanence with God. Eternity with God. The sign of Lot's wife is being taken by the hand and permanence. Eternity with God. It would be wise to note that information before preaching something contrary on Luke 17.32. I'm just saying as as an idea. Okay. Where's the hummingbird? Going next. Does the hummingbird know where he's going, you're thinking? Maybe. Maybe the hummingbird knows. Maybe only the hummingbird knows. If I say that right, I can get a radio show in the 1940s. My favorite gospel group as a youth was the Dixie Hummingbirds. I love the Dixie Hummingbirds. Not to be confused with the Dixie Chickens which is uh, a political enterprise pretending to be a musical group. I believe uh, the latter there is now a symbol for self-destruction. The former, the Dixie Hummingbirds, they are men obedient to God. They, I digress a little bit, but they deserve mention. Unsurprisingly, this theme of reversing Genesis 3.19, Ecclesiastes 12, is prominent in the creation itself. Something quite a few of you have noticed with very little prompting from the religious professional. That's me. You've begun to see this everywhere, and I, I hoped you would. A while ago, I began to discuss the resting electrical polarization of the myocardial cells in the heart muscle. That's heart muscle cell. I said there is a, a, a relaxation and a contractile or a contraction uh, state in the myocardial cells, the smallest level. Relaxation and contraction are necessary to sustain blood flow, obviously. 
And the heart has to sustain a consistent cycle in order to fulfill its intended function. Essentially, yes, I see you there. It says on the clock that I have 11 minutes. Huh? I could be right? Okay. So that gives me one minute per page. Gotta move. Okay, the heart has to have a consistent cycle. I know this from experience. That's a pretty important thing. And it has to produce this rhythmic, rhythmic contractile uh, and relaxation system in order to get the blood to flow correctly. And so contractile strength is necessary, and that's converted to blood volume and distribution. And this diagram, that one's rudimentary, but this one is a little bit more accurate. Not completely by any means. So this, as I said, this contraction and relaxation rhythm is electrical. And it has to be regular. And it has to be regularity established or predicated. Um, and, and there's a sequential series of electrophysiological actions, electrical circuitry that causes all of this to come together. And I presented a little bit of it last week. For today, though, consider today we're going to go down to the cardiac cell the membranes, and all of these cells in a relaxed state are positively charged on their outer surfaces. And that means they're negatively charged on their inner surfaces. Their batteries is what they are, every one of them. But they're positive on the outside and negative on the inside when they're in a relaxation state. And this is called the resting membrane potential. Batteries have potentials. If you have a 12-volt battery and it's just sitting there, it's not connected to anything, it has 12 volts of potential. It has to have a completed circuit through a resistance in order to have amperage, named for a guy named Ampere. Voltage, named for a guy named Volta. Battery, named for me, Steve. Okay, not yet. We're working on it. Anyway, the individual myocardial cells have this potential. And when they're hit with a stimulus, what's the obvious question? What's the stimulus? What hits these things? Because when they're hit with the stimulus, next week we'll talk about the stimulus. When they're hit with the stimulus, that allows their ion channels to receive sodium ions and calcium ions. Now you know why I eat what I eat. When the sodium and the ions get into the myocardial cell, they enter into it when, when the cell is stimulated, it opens. And that reverses, oh my gosh, it changes, it reverses the polarity. Here we go again. The cardiac cell membranes are called depolarized. The resting membrane potential is changed, is reversed. The outer surfaces are now negatively charged. And the myocardium goes from relaxation now to contraction. And this period of depolarization where this infusion occurs is extremely brief, very short. It has to be because the guy designed it that way and he's really smart. Someone designed the sodium ion channels to close quickly. They have to close quickly. We'll get into the delays of the ventricle and the atria here as weeks go by. But when they're closing quickly, they're simultaneously open to potassium ion channels. 
And the, those potassium ion channels unlock and push out the sodium ions. So as soon as the sodium ions go in, the potassium ions uh, channels unlock and they push and diffuse out the sodium ions and they change the polarity back. So it happens really quickly. How fast does it happen? I know. Boom, boom. They call it lub-dub. The myocardial cells repolarizing returns their natural relaxed state. So it goes from a relaxed state to a contracted state. That's how this electrical device pumps blood. How many myocardial cells are reversing in polarity in your heart? Two billion. Two billion cells in there. A lifetime calculation is available if you want. In other words, if there's two billions of them and their, their polarity is reversing a hundred thousand times a day, because they are, in my case it's about 120 because my heart rate is elevated, you can use your phone. If you have, say, a lifetime of, let's just have an arbitrary number, 66 and counting, how many millions contractile and relaxation is happening. Again, use your phone and that 66 completely arbitrary. Anyway, the process is magnificent. This microscopic electrical chemical action that is ultimately results in muscle contraction. It's a, it's a magnificent exi exhibition of intelligence. Contraction and relaxation of a device that promote, provides blood volume throughout the body. The medical assisted or assigned term, terminology here is systole and diastole. Systole is ventricle contraction and relaxation. Now keep in mind there are two functions of the cardiac cycle. Basically blood volume distribution is what we're doing, but I have blood volume distribution into the lungs and I have blood volume distribution into the brain, the arms and the legs, which is called the systemic circulatory system. So I have the pulmonary system and I have the systemic circulatory system. The pulmonary circulation is also amazing. That's the lungs and the and it comes out of the uh, right ventricle and goes into the pulmonary artery and spreads out into both lungs. Now, why does the blood go into the lungs? Because it has to have something. It has to have oxygen. So I have deoxygenated blood going into the lungs. What happens in the lungs? It somehow gets a what? A conversion from carbon dioxide to oxide, if you will. Oxygen. O2. So I have I have this exchanging again. I have to have oxygenated blood and I have to get rid of, expel the carbon dioxide. And it happens at the capillary level. It's the same process, essentially. So the capillaries are designed. Oh, my goodness, how convenient. The pulmonary circulation at the cap capillary le level exchanges oxygen and carbon dioxide. Why does it do that? Why don't we always suffocate when we breathe in? We don't. How does this work? Capillaries have this property that allows this interchange, this reversing, if you will, to occur. Isn't that convenient considering it's perfect? 
It's in perfect harmony to the Earth's atmosphere. And as a happenstance, another, how many mathematical happenstances do we have so far? Vegetation absorbs the CO2 and emits oxygen. Isn't that wonderful? We have a bunch of idiots that think CO2 is a pollutant. Good grief, it makes me just hurt. And the dumber you are, the faster you get elected to Congress. It's just amazing, that relationship. So what he... I just want to point out this exchanging, this reversing, this theme in Scripture. And so I want you to wonder why it's here. What is proved by it? Why has he done it this way? What is the testimony of capillary uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen exchanging? Or if you will, myochondria reversing polarity. What's being proved by that with a stimulus? God says to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, The Lord does not see a man as a man sees. Let me say that better. The Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. What's he mean? Why doesn't the Lord look at the outward appearance? What's he looking at when he's looking at the heart? What does he see? Why does God look at the heart? What does he see that we do not see? 1 Samuel 13, 14. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Does God have a heart? Yes, he does. Does he have a body? Oh, yeah. Pretty important to know that. Paul quotes 1 Samuel 13, 14 in Acts 13, 22, and he applied it to David. And i got to say this, I talked to uh, about it a, a few minutes ago with, to Dana and Supper Dave. In the Hebrew, mind and heart are commutable, which means they have, they have a, a synonymous element to it. Not a perfect one, but they have it. So you have to be aware that when you read something, it could be both, could be the other. But you look at the context. With that said, Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, the word made flesh, has a physical heart inside his physical body. And guess what? He can see it. Were you asking a question or just your hand went up really fast? Wow. I asked a stupid question a couple of weeks back, something like this. Doesn't Jesus Christ, uh, creator God, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, Omnipotent, doesn't he know that the heart is just a physical pump with no emotional or mental capacity? Because he doesn't talk about it that way. Is he wrong? Asking to ask, keep going with this. Why does God insist on describing the heart with his, the way he does? He describes his own heart as if it possesses aspects of the mind. Why does he do that? Neurocardiologists. That you're becoming. There are 830 biblical references in Scripture to the heart. The implications, if you take their totality, when they're taken as a whole, is is wondrous. And it is not what our medical community or scientific community thinks, though they are changing 1970s. 
The heart, brain, mind, soul is yet to be understood. We have a very small, tiny piece of this grand mystery, which in itself is evidence of the one who conceived it. It is clearly designed to be beyond the grasp of human understanding. It's a symbol. We were talking earlier about how many entries are there into the human heart. A couple of you came up and said, I want to count those, which is a really good idea, Clarence Larkin. People have counted them. This is a symbol of something. He designed it to portray something or someone. Figure it out. Right now it's a grand mystery. And again, that's evidence. If we could have figured it out, uh, that would bring it into some disrepute. We can't figure it out. It's clearly designed to be beyond the grasp of human understanding, the mind, soul, brain, and heart. And it might, in my opinion, it will be this way forever. It's intended to remain this way. We are not going to know. We're never going to have the knowledge of the specifics of the design in its entirety. How all the trillions of pieces function. The magnitude of the physical machine of this complexity. How it is intertwined with the breath of the spirit of life how they function, and yet they are separate into a union. I submit uh, th- this will never be known. It will only be accepted and believed and never fully known. It will remain the mystery of life, and it's going to reside with the one who designed it and who gave the life itself. Finally, a few, maybe two, it's good for will to be displayed. God says so. It's good for will to be revealed. Man and animals demonstrate will. And their will is observed. I see animals' will observed every day, all day long. And it's relentless will. They have it. And they aren't shy about showing us. And this is good He intended for your will, for animal will, to be revealed, not hidden. Why is that good? To help you invoke the reciprocal, the inverse, if you will. If there was no evidences of will, if will was disallowed, prohibited, or if it were an illusion, didn't exist, consider the impact on creativity. Can I have creativity without will? If creativity is negated, how is the creation impacted by that? There are many who say, scientifically especially, but theologically, that humanity has no will. I'm asking you, how does that impact creativity? How does that impact the creation itself? Can the creation be without intrinsic creativity? Would the creator remove creativity? Would the creator put creativity in his creation? Would the, rem- would the creator remove creativity? If you answer that or create without it, then you have answered why it is good for will to be displayed. Hopefully that makes some sense. Anesthesiology and consciousness. You're thinking, I'm a hummingbird still. You're right. I wish I was a Dixie hummingbird. Anesthesia and consciousness. It is increasingly common for anesthesiologists to say, uh, to assert that anesthetics removes consciousness. 
They will say that their anesthetics kill you. You are in a death state. They even brag about how many times they themselves have been dead. You'll find it all over the internet. They believe that their anesthetics remove consciousness. To be more specific, general anesthetics. In my case, propofol. Which is why I was my fifth. Never mind. That joke worked really well once. I shouldn't have tried it again. But they think the general anesthetics uh, diminishes consciousness to the place of removal. And that results in a lot of questions, doesn't it? Let me ask them. Just a couple of them. Is the loss of memory or pain sensation, if you cannot feel pain or you can't remember feeling pain, so is the loss of pain sensation and or memory uh, equivalent to the removal of consciousness? Yes or no? Obviously, we are entering the subject of will, memory, and existence. Again, with this discussion, is amnesia evidence of a loss of consciousness? What is the difference between life and consciousness? Things for you to consider. The anesthesiologist community is proposing that removing memory or blocking memory or suppressing all activity or all of the above, disabling the autonomic nervous system, is a replication of death. And they say so with authority or seeming authority. Why do they do this? Why do they think this? And what does the Bible say? Next week, we will fire at that.